Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is season five, episode 25, produced by Jesus Centered Resources, which is just another way of saying produced by me. So many of you know I'm sort of uh, in the, um, the great in-between right now. Uh, I left my 33-year position at Group Publishing um, about three weeks ago, and now I am rowing my boat into the great unknown. Um, exploring new options and new possibilities, but um, wanting to keep on keeping on with uh, the Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus podcast. I hope to do this till the day I die, which I, I hope that's a lot of seasons because <laughs> we're in season five, as I said, at episode 25 now. My name, uh, if you're new to the podcast, is Rick. Um, I'm author of last year's The God Who Fights for You and upcoming this year, a book uh, of daily devotionals called the Jesus Centered Daily. I am so excited for this to be released. I think in the next few weeks, I will see the first printed copies of this little treasure. Um, and I, I can't wait to share it with you. So we'll talk more about that later. I'm also uh, midstream. I haven't really talked about this that much on the podcast, but for the last, uh, I think five months now, four months now, um, I have been working on co-authoring a book with Dr. Daniel Amina from the Amen Clinics. Maybe uh, some of you are familiar with the Amen Clinics. Uh, Daniel Amen, who started this string of clinics, is um, on PBS a lot. He does those you know, hour-long PBS specials that are health-oriented. And uh, he is very well-known. He's a multiple New York Times bestselling author. And uh, at at Amen Clinics, one of their primary uh, focuses is on helping people who are struggling with anxiety, depression, and suicidal thinking. And I have been thinking about and pondering and talking about and writing about a way of approaching the issue of depression and suicide for a long time through the filter of Jesus. What would it be like to not just react and respond to this growing epidemic of suicide in our culture, but to explore ways of uh, keeping it from ever happening in the first place based on the way Jesus interacted with people and came alongside people. So uh, that's what Dr. Dr. Daniel Amina and I are exploring right now. We're midway through a book that will come out next year, I think, and it's, it's called The Suicide Solution. So... Uh, as I get finished with that book later in this year, and when I know more about when it might be coming out, um, I will let you know. But that book I'm in midstream with right now, so um, I'm deep into the weeds with it. So we'll let you know more about that later. Um, I'm also the, the general editor of the Jesus Centered Bible. So for those of you who uh, um, are wondering, um, uh, how can I live out sort of the ethic, the ethos of this podcast, which is a closer and closer orbit around Jesus every day. How can I live that out? Well, the Jesus Center Bible is a fantastic way to do that. It's a one-of-a-kind Bible. There's nothing else out there like it. It has features that no other Bible in the world have and has, including 
something we call the blue letters, which uh, we know red letters in the New Testament point to the words of Jesus, but the blue, but my uh, buddy Ken Castor and I, who's a professor at Crown College, spent, oh, untold hours poring over the Old Testament, looking for every place that pointed to Jesus in the Old Testament. And there are so many we had to sort of pump the brakes on that uh, process because there were so many places that point to Jesus in the Old Testament. Every time we found one, we highlighted that, that portion of scripture in blue type. And then we wrote a little blue box that described the connection between that and Jesus. And we ended up with more than 600 of those throughout the Old Testament, pretty much on every page in the Old Testament, you can find one of these little blue boxes. So that's just one of eight or nine special features we've included in that Bible. And so if you don't have one, um, head on over to group.com and, and buy a Jesus-centered Bible. It's also available on Amazon uh, if you prefer to buy it there. But a uh, little note, note to everyone, when you buy directly from the publisher, the, the uh, authors and the folks that put it all together actually get more of your money than if you buy it from Amazon. Amazon's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, DoorDash or Grubhub. They, they, uh, they deliver that food to your door, but the restaurant that produced it doesn't get very much money for it. A lot of that money goes to the deliverer. And in this case, Amazon takes a lot of that money. So I buy stuff from Amazon all the time. I'm sure you do too. But if you want more of your money to go to those who are producing these resources, people like me, uh, buy directly from the publisher. Just go to group.com and search for the Jesus Center Bible and you'll see four different cover colors you can you can go after and there's also a hardcover version of it so by the way just to let you know also my friend jeff white who i worked with for years has an incredible new story bible for for adults called eyewitness you probably have heard before story bibles for children well jeff wrote a story bible for children about two years ago or so and it was incredible it was a best-selling story bible for children and it was telling the stories of the bible in a much more uh, raw, real way um, for children to really get at the root, the raw truth of these stories. Well, Jeff had the idea of creating a similar story Bible, but this time for adults, um, oriented and geared toward the sensibilities of adults. It's called Eyewitness. It's coming out in September. Um, I think about, I don't know, six or seven months ago, I had Jeff on the podcast and we talked about uh, some of the the, the ways to approach scripture in a more honest and real way. And I'm going to have Jeff back on the podcast in August, and we'll, we'll explore some of the raw edges of some of these stories that he covers in Eyewitness, that uh, these stories wouldn't be good choices for Sunday school. So I look forward to that in August. So we're three episodes now into a new series I'm calling In His Image. Basically, uh, we're, we're uh, exploring in greater depth what the book of Genesis says, which is God created us in his image. Well, what does that mean? Do we physically look like God? We, we know that, well, that's not exactly true, that when that phrase created in his image, it means something much more than simply that we look like him physically. It means that our essence somehow is reflective of his essence. So what we're doing is exploring what makes Jesus Jesus, his essence. And then we're exploring, connected to that, how we're wired to reflect who he is and what he does in our everyday life. And today we're going to focus on a word that has a big payload. The word is hope. So 
this is actually one of the big three. Hope is one of the big three. If you don't know what the big three are, um, it's planted and embedded in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. This is where Paul is exploring the nature of our humanity. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, here's what he says. Three things, three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And now you know the kicker. The greatest of these is love, right? But faith, hope, and love, he says, are eternal. They will never go away. They're forever. And then he highlights one of them as the greatest. And we, we think of these words, faith, hope, and love, as sort of verbs and nouns. But they're also truly characteristics that describe Jesus' operating system. A computer, a computer has software that helps it to make use of the computer's hardware and do stuff for us. It's the interface that we use to get things done on a computer. And so the operating system of a person is the thing that determines its functionality and what it, what it does and won't do. And faith, hope, and love describe Jesus's operating system. So today on this episode, we're going to explore one of the, I guess you could call it the slightly less greatest of those big three, hope. So um, a couple nights ago, uh, our whole family sat down to watch Stranger Things again, the Netflix series that came out three or four years ago now and made a sensation, became a huge, uh, uh, popular, viral Netflix series. It's, it's probably what started the whole binging habit in our, uh, in our culture, the TV binging habit. So Stranger Things is definitely binge-worthy. It's a, a science fiction slightly, I guess you could call it slightly horror genre show set in the uh, 1980s. Uh, and the, the primary focal point characters are all uh, young teenagers. Um, and it's a sort of a coming of age story combined with a watch out, um, horrific things are happening story. <laughs> and it's a supernatural story. Um, so we have watched the whole series. Uh, it's now three seasons uh, uh, under the belt uh, for Stranger Things. And the fourth, the fourth year will be coming out, I think, later this year but, or early next year. But we watched the first three seasons, and we've watched them multiple times. And we've seen the first season at least three times already. But my youngest daughter, Emma, had a friend who had never seen Stranger Things before. So she invited him to come experience watching Stranger Things because he knew nothing about it. So it was on in the background of our house yeah, while my daughter was watching it with him and we couldn't help ourselves. The rest of us love the, this first season so much. You know how something on, is on in the background that you just have such a good relationship with, you just can't help yourself. You watch it again, even though you've seen it before. Well, that's what happened. We all ended up uh, watching this first season of Stranger Things again. And, um, my daughter's friend ended up not being able to watch for about a month. He had vacation and other stuff going on. He just couldn't watch for about a month. And so we had to stop midstream. Well, my daughter, Lucy, my older daughter, Lucy, kept saying, hey, the next episode that we're supposed to watch is actually my favorite episode. And do we really have to wait a month to watch the next one? I'm going to die if we have to wait a month. Well, we waited a month. This last week, she couldn't take it any longer. And she said, come on, um, we're not going to still be able to watch this for another two weeks. 
Now that, uh, Emma, your friend can, can catch up to us later, but let's watch this next episode because it's my favorite episode. Well, she had been saying all along that she kept thinking that the next episode was this one episode she loved the most. And we kept watching and it wasn't the next episode. It was further off. So we determined a couple nights ago, we're going to watch that next one so that Lucy can see the episode she's waiting, been pining away to see. So we watched that episode and it wasn't her favorite episode. And she assured us at the end, no, it's got to be the next one. It's, I'm sure it's the next one. So we watched the second episode and it wasn't that one either. And by the time we got to the end of that second episode, we had no more time. It was too late to watch a third one. So wouldn't you know it, my daughter Lucy was stuck in the dissonance of hope. <laughs> she, we couldn't watch it. And for sure, we couldn't watch it that, that this week for another two or three days. So she was going to have to wait again. So Proverbs 13, 12, you probably know this pretty well. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Well, uh, it certainly has made Lucy's heart sick to have to wait this long to see her favorite episode of Stranger Things. But, but what kind of hope in this case is being deferred? What brand of hope are we talking about when we talk about Lucy having to wait to see this, this next episode of Stranger Things? What brand of hope is that? And if you think about it, it's not a deep hope. It's not a hope tied to marriage or children or career or your faith. It's a more uh, surface hope, I guess you could say it. It's, it's an important hope. It's not that it doesn't matter, but it's not going to change her life. Um, and if she never saw that next episode, she would be able to go on in her life um, and be perfectly happy. So it's a kind of hope, but it, it's, it's a kind of a surface level hope. So the, the, the feeling around it is real in the moment, but it's not a, a, a permanent uh, impact for missing or deferring that hope. It's not permanent. Um, and it makes you think, well, what, what do people hope for? When we use that word hope, we, it, you know, in other languages, like the Spanish language, for instance, has multiple words for the word hope. Some describe sort of this surface level hope and some describe a deeper level of hope. But in the English language, we really only have this one word and it's supposed to cover all brands of hope. And so it's, it, it, it's really, that word is lacking <laughs> because uh, the, the meaning behind hope can mean lots of things. In Dante's Inferno, uh, the inscription over the gates of hell, this is what that, that inscription reads. Through me, you enter the city of woe. Through me, you pass into eternal pain. Through me, you join the God-forsaken tribe. Justice moved my exalted creator. By the divine power was I erected, and by supreme wisdom and primal love. Before I was made, nothing had been made, but things eternal, and I too am such. So abandon all hope, ye who enter here. You probably heard that last part of that many times, used in a joke or a sarcastic reference. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Now you know where that comes from. It comes from Dante's Inferno, the inscription over the gates of hell. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Well, what are they abandoning when they walk through the gates of hell? Now, you could say that's at the polar opposite of the, the hope deferred uh, for Lucy 
not seen her favorite episode of Stranger Things. At the other end of that continuum is those who are supposed to abandon every hope as they enter the gates of hell. <laughs> that is the summation of all hopes. When you enter through that gate, uh, hope isn't a thing anymore, actually. Even the meaning of the word is going to go away. It was interesting. I'm just poking around, trying to, trying to uh, poke and prod at this word hope and squeeze out its many different meanings. And there's a tech website called Motherboard that asked 105 thinkers. It's interesting how, they, <laughs> how these tech nerds, um, they just branded these 105 people that they interviewed thinkers, people who think, think, think deep thoughts. So they asked these 105 people, what gives them the most hope for the future? And here is their top five list. Now keep in mind who they're asking. These are, these are tech connected thinkers and they're asking them what gives them the most hope for the future. Their, their number one answer was young people, which I actually really love that answer. I work and, and I'm around young people a lot. We have 20 of them at our home every week. Right now we're uh, social distancing in our backyard. Um, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. We're actually still meeting with our group, our home group, but we only meet outside and we have them in clumps of four and each clump of four, each person in a clump sits in a hula hoop that's six feet away from the others. And uh, that's how we do the night. They stay in their hula hoops all night, social distanced, and we have a, a great time. So every week I'm with about 20 young people and I am reminded every week uh, the hope of our future uh, with them. I am just so impressed with the hunger and passion young people have for the person of Jesus and the capability they have of embracing and understanding um, his many, many facets. And the, the, the passion they have for serving and helping those outside of themselves and the passion they have for living their life, not out of rules and regulations, but out of a love for Jesus. I'm just every week impressed with young people and so were these 105 thinkers that Motherboard asked the question, what, what do you have hope for the future? So their number one answer was young people. And then, not surprisingly, their number two answer was technology. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that have hope in technology today. You could say that our hope right now in the middle of this pandemic is also based on technology. We're hoping for a, uh, for a, a new drug, a new vaccine that will allow us to go back to whatever normal looks like on the other side of this. Well, developing a vaccine uh, requires technology. So you could say everyone right now is hoping for the, the uh, expression of technology in the form of a vaccine that allows us to get back to the norm. So, so I guess you could say most people also have hope in technology. Number three on their list was equity and social justice, that they see hope for the future and a growing movement toward equity and social justice. And we see that being lived out in our culture right now in the Black Lives Matter movement and in um, a, a lots of uh, social justice movements that are trying to bring greater equity and justice in our culture. The number four on their list was the bigness of the world. I thought it was interesting that, that they had to collect a bunch of these answers into this sort of amorphous idea that the world is really big. And, uh, it's bigger than us, and therefore that produces hope. It's interesting that something bigger outside of ourselves 
actually produces hope in us. We'll come back to that in a bit. The number five on their list is human ingenuity. And I have to say, uh, I, I've been incredibly impressed with human ingenuity during this pandemic and how people have morphed and adapted to this situation, how they have morphed and adapted their businesses and their lives to meet the challenge of this situation. Human beings are uh, intrinsically creative and their ingenuity is staggering sometimes. So I agree with them there too, that human ingenuity is, is one of our hopes for the future. So, so when, we, when we talk about our hopes for the future, and we see this list of young people, technology, equity and social justice, the bigness of the world, human ingenuity. What kind of hopes are these? Are they lasting hopes? Are they surface hopes? I think they offer both. Uh, you could make a case that hope is a mini, uh, uh, a mini stratified kind of concept, that it, it works on the surface and it works at, at very deep levels. And all five of these things, you could, interpret them at any one of those strata. So if you think about, uh, here's another way to think about hope. Uh, what do you hope for in the next five minutes? Like, what are you hoping for right now that could actually happen in the next five minutes? Like, like I'm hoping right now for an oatmeal raisin cookie. That would be lovely. And I know exactly where they are. Homemade oatmeal raisin cookies in our bread box I, I think that that could be a real hope. I could go out to the bread box and grab one of those things and my hope would come true. So that's what I hope for in the next five minutes. But what about you? What is a legitimate hope for you in the next five minutes? What, what just pops into your head when I ask that question? Oatmeal raisin cookie popped into my head. <laughs> and then if you think about, let's go a, a notch up. What do you hope for in the next day? What do you hope for in the next day? Um, the first thing that pops into my head is my, my friend Andy is going to get on a Zoom call with me in the morning, and he's going to help me uh, continue to set up my new website, uh, ricklawrence.com. It's actually not new. It's probably two or three years old now, but it's just sort of been dormant during this time. I've done very little with it, and now I'm trying to build it up and make it a thing now, and, and I need a lot of help doing that, and my friend Andy is a brilliant tech wizard guy he's going to get on a Zoom call with me in the morning and help me uh, take my next steps in building up that website. And so uh, what I hope for in the next day is I have some greater clarity around what I need to do to help build up this website. So you can see the difference between the hope that I have for the next five minutes and the hope I have for the next day. There's a ratcheted up meaning to that hope already that bec because the time situation is the next day, not just the next five minutes. It implies something deeper and better and more meaningful. So let's do that, do that one more time. Let's ratchet it up again. What do I hope for in the next four months? What am I hoping for for the next four months? The first thing that pops into my head is that I'm, I'm hoping I'm working and playing a significant role in a new career. I have hopes for that. I'm the finalist for uh, interviewing for a new uh, executive director of a ministry. I'll tell you more about that if that comes to fruition. Uh, but I'm a finalist in that process. And I hope in four months that I'm in that role. And um, I, I, I can't wait to get started if that were, were to come true. So if in the next four months, my hope is that I have a new job and a new mission and a new passion for that mission. So that you can see that 
that hope also is ratcheted up because I've given myself a boundary of the next four months. So the depth of my hope is growing the further out we go here. So if, if I then said, what do I hope for in the next 10 years? What do I hope for in the next 10 years? Wow, now, now you're starting to really get at foundational things, right? So in the next 10 years, uh, probably by the end of that time, I'll have entered something like what we normally call retirement, though, though I don't want to enter into the conventional retirement that people typically think of. When I see that transition, I see myself full-time just writing and speaking. Um, and that, that's what I see myself at the end of that 10 years. That I think that's what I'm going to be doing, and that's what I hope for. And along with that, um, I will no longer have kids at home. And what I hope for is that my wife and I will be able to uh, take advantage of opportunities to help and influence others around the world in a wide variety of ways. And, and I'm looking forward and hoping for the chance to travel with her and do these, the, these things, to live an adventurous life in serving and helping people around the world. That's what I hope for. Well, you can see the further we go out, the deeper our hopes drill down and the, the deeper down the strata that drill bit goes. So hope is a lot more flexible and a lot, a lot broader in its meaning than we, than we give it credit for at first blush. So uh, let's explore what I call the hope variations. How do we interpret all of these different stratas of hope? What meanings do we attach to it? And are some meanings more accurate or important than others? Are some meanings more meaningful than others? I'd have to say yes, that, that as I went through my progression, and you can too, just do this uh, for yourself the next five minutes, the next day, the next four months, the next 10 years, see what your hopes are. And notice what you notice about those hopes. Um, do they grow in their meaning the further you go out? And I think the answer for me is yes, they do. Because the further out we look and the more time we give, us, give ourselves to hope, the deeper we dig into our soul, the things that are most important about life. Um, so I think uh, some meanings of hope are more meaningful and actually more, I, I guess I could say, accurate to the depth of meaning of the word. They, they're, they, they're weighty enough to express the weight of the word hope. Because a hope, of course, is different than want. Most things that we want um, have to do with food <laughs> or relationships, of course. But, you know, we're, uh, a lot of our wants, you could just probably put a big basket full of food that uh, expresses uh, most of our wants, uh, things like that. But wants, wants aren't really hopes, are they? They're, they're, uh, they're more functional. They're more transitory than a hope is. We don't invest great meaning in a want. We invest great meaning in hopes. So, uh, and hope is also different than a want in that hope is also more dangerous, isn't it? That when you hope for something, you're risking something. And the deeper the hope, the, the, the greater the risk you have. So some people have been hoping for a spouse or some people have been hoping to be able to have children. And these hopes are dangerous because if these hopes don't come true, the, the, 
the lack of them coming true could have destructive impact in your life. Could your hopes dashed in these areas can take the wind out of your sails in your life. They can, they can permanently impact the trajectory of your life. So hopes carry with them this kind of danger. And when Paul says that hope is one of the three things that will last forever, I think he's, he's, he's getting at this deeper form of hope, this more dangerous form of hope that these three, the three things that will last forever, I've also mentioned are characteristics of Jesus's operating system. So what does Paul mean when he says these things last forever? Well, one way to take that is that these three things um, describe the operating system of Jesus and Jesus is forever. Therefore, hope is forever. Jesus is not only expressing hope, he is hope. He embodies hope. His name is hope. He is our living hope. Um, he's the hope that, that is so easily accessible to us and yet so profoundly impactful of the trajectory of our life, the meaningfulness of our life. Jesus embodies hope and therefore hope is an eternal thing. It's going to last forever. I think it's interesting to, to travel back into uh, the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus has just healed a man's deformed hand on the Sabbath. Now, this is in Matthew 12. And the, uh, Jesus made a practice of doing stuff like this on the Sabbath right in front of the, of the religious leaders. He's, he's kind of sassy in this way. He, he has noticed how the religious leaders, the duplicitous, self-righteous religious leaders, um, are so two-faced about this whole rule about not working on the Sabbath. He has pointed out previously that, of course, if one of their cows fell down a well, they would try to get that cow out of the well, even if it was on the Sabbath, which officially is translated work. And yet they don't want him to heal a man's deformed hand on the Sabbath. Jesus finds this completely ridiculous and unjust and uncaring. And so he makes a practice of doing things on the Sabbath that just drive the religious leaders crazy. And this is one of those stories where right in front of them, he heals this man's deformed hand, knowing he's doing it on the Sabbath, knowing they're going to be furious about it because he's kind of rubbing it in their faces. And in this case, this is kind of a tipping point um, encounter because when he does this once again and rubs it in their faces, from this point on, these religious leaders are plotting to kill him. Um, that this is the spark, the trigger that leads them down this path where they're, they're planning their, their murderous conspiracy against him. But it's not the time for that to, uh, for Jesus to submit himself to that. So he escapes, he gets out of there. It's just not time for this yet. But as they're leaving and getting out of there, his disciples, uh, for some reason, remember Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah. Um, now, Keep in mind that the disciples, as good Jews, they, they have been studying along with all of their uh, fellow Jews for uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, every little thing that was ever said about the coming Messiah, because this is their hope. Their hope is in the Messiah. And so they have studied all of the uh, Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and they all know them. 
because they're all waiting and hoping for this Messiah to come and bring them freedom. And in this case, freedom from their Roman oppressors. Everyone in the culture is expecting that when the Messiah arrives, he will be a political slash military leader who will free them from the oppression of their Roman overlords. Um, and that's all they can think about is one day we'll be free out from under the thumb of these people because the Messiah will come and kick them out. So the disciples remember one of Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah right after Jesus gets in the face of the religious leaders and heals this man's deformed hand. And they're, they're thinking about how Jesus just fulfilled that prophecy. So I'm going to read it, read this prophecy from Isaiah in two different versions. Now, this prophecy of Isaiah is, uh, is, is uh, rebroadcast, I guess you could say, in Matthew 12, but, it, but originally it was Isaiah speaking these words. So here we go. First, in the New Living Translation, which is the translation we use in the Jesus-centered Bible. Uh, here we go. This is Isaiah's prophecy. Look at my servant whom I've chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. Finally, he will cause justice to be victorious, and his name will be the hope of the world. His name will be the hope of the world. Now let's read the same prophecy in the message version. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the gospel. This again is Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Look well at my hand-picked servant. I love him so much. Take such delight in him. I've placed my spirit on him. He'll decree justice to the nations, but he won't yell. He won't raise his voice. There'll be no commotion in the streets. He won't walk over anyone's feelings. He won't push you into a corner. Before you know it, his justice will triumph. The mere sound of his name will signal hope, even among far-off unbelievers. Now, when you think about this description of the Messiah in, in this prophetic terms of Isaiah, in both of these versions, a couple of questions. First one is just obvious. Why is Jesus' name the hope of the world? Why is his name, why does it represent hope? It's always a funny thing in scripture to think about the meaning that it places behind names. In that culture, names were a big deal. Names didn't represent just uh, something that sounded good to your parents. Names were invested with meaning and purpose. And so when we say the name of Jesus, we're also saying his purpose in the world, the, the meaning behind his mission. What has he come to do? So to say in his name will be the hope of the world, we're really saying in his identity, in his purpose, in his mission is the hope of the world. And in the message version, the mere sound of his name will signal hope even among far off unbelievers. What, uh, what in this paraphrase of this, the mere sound of his name, I love that because you know how uh, when you hear the name of someone in your life who represents um, a person of great influence in your life, a positive, powerful, impactful person in your life, when you just see the spelling of their name or hear their name mentioned, you, you have a biological reaction to that name because the name is tied 
to the person's influence in your life. Their name is tied to their agency in, their, in your life. Their name is tied to the deepest parts of what make you hope or despair. If you hear the name of someone that you know will always come through for you, um, that you have no doubt that if you had to call them in the middle of the night, they would show up. If you hear that person's name, you immediately attach to that name a kind of hope. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a deep hope, not a surface hope. It's a hope based on the character and integrity and commitment and determination of that person. And so what Isaiah is saying is that this name of the Messiah, the name of Jesus, will represent hope to us. That, and the reason that a name represents hope, now think about this for a second. The only way a name can represent hope to you is if you know the person behind that name. If I, if I said, uh, let me just think of the name of a, oh, a close friend of mine is Brad Behan. Brad Behan is a longtime close friend of mine. Well, how could Brad Behan's name represent hope to you without knowing who he is and without his agency in your life? If you don't know who he is and he makes no difference in your everyday life and you'll never really know him, then why would his name represent hope to you? Hope is tied to the to the intimacy of the of the person whose name that represents. That's what hope is tied to. And so the deeper we know Jesus, the more we get familiar with the uh, the the lion of the tribe of Judah, the the untamed lion, to use C.S. Lewis's description of him. The more we get our uh, heart and head around that Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture the more his name, just his very name, represents hope to us. And what kind of hope is that, that this prophecy implies? Well, if you look at uh, this list of things, this list of descriptions, um, he'll proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will cause justice to be victorious. Here you get a picture that um, creates some dissonance, actually, because we know that Jesus is fierce. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. Hmm? Is this the same Jesus of the scripture? But uh, the implication here is that he's not a rabble rouser or a rebel or a, uh, a zealot. He's not just fomenting rebellion or revolution. He's not, he's not trying to work the crowd up into a frenzy to take over in, in the way that they expected, which was political and military way. He is not going to do what they expected the Messiah to do, to fight and shout and raise his voice in public, to bring about uh, societal cultural change. He's not gonna do that. And he's not gonna crush the weakest reed or put out the, a flickering candle. If there's any hope in someone, he's not gonna dash that hope. If there's any fragility in someone, he's not going to crush that fragility. He's going to handle that fragility tenderly. So we see here, even in the person of Jesus that we see in scripture, um, a Jesus who is ferocious, but never a uh, revolutionary in the classic sense of how we see that word. He's ferocious on behalf of his father and behalf of people and on behalf of the truth. 
He's ferocious, yes. But he does not go around inciting violence in crowds. He just doesn't do it. And he's quite tender, incredibly tender, shockingly tender with those who are in the weakest place in life, those who are the most marginalized, those who are the most needy. He's quite tender with them. And even with those that we have, the rest of us have given up hope on, those flickering candles out there that we think that thing's, that thing's going to go out. It's, it's never going to, to, to uh, graduate into a flame, really. It's just flickering. It's about to go out. Jesus doesn't put out those flickering candles. He tries to um, feed those flames. Um, he never gives up. That's another way of saying it. He will never give up no matter how flickering your candle is. And the last word here is finally, he, he will cause justice to be victorious, meaning justice means um, not simply fairness, but the foundational justice that gives us freedom. And the greatest foundational justice that gives us freedom is that our sin has been paid for. And we are no longer captives to the law, to the law of sin and death. We've been freed from that. We've been married to a new spouse. We're no longer beholden to that old spouse. We, we now can live in the freedom of, of the children of God, that we are part of his family. And as part of his family, we know his name will be the hope of all the world. So this kind of hope, this kind of hope described here is personal, it's intimate, it goes to the heart, not to the surface. It goes to the deepest places in us. It's a living hope. Jesus is alive. It's not a, he's not a concept. Our hope is in someone who, who is alive and adjusting himself to our life as we adjust ours to his. And this hope is invested in something greater than us, something far greater than us. And in fact, you could say the deepest hopes are always invested in the in the highest sources of hope. The higher it is, the deeper it is. Um, our hope involves a kind of a costly investment of our heart. We are risking something the deeper we hope. And that uh, obviously makes us more vulnerable. Real hope exposes our vulnerability. And it, it also exposes our uncertainty because when we start to really hope for something that could if the hope is not met, um, then it uh, tends to surface all of our doubts and all of our arguments against that hope. And we try to, to take a peremptory strike against the pain of losing our hope by, uh, by surfacing all of our doubts and, in, and uncertainties about it in advance. This kind of hope is weighty. When we, when, we say, when we read, his name will be the hope of all of the world, talk about weighty. His name, in his name, rests the weight of the world. And uh, thank God that Jesus can carry that weight. The hope of Jesus can carry the hope of the world. It's an intense and raw kind of expression of our humanity to hope in this way. Now, the people, again, they were wanting a military victory. That's all they wanted. I mean, to them, that was... That was the highest hope they could have to be released from the captivity of their Roman uh, oppressors. And yet what Jesus wanted to give them was a hope so much greater. They didn't even know how to hope for it. 
a kind of fundamental freedom that would make them free, even if their Roman oppressors continued to be in charge of their lives, what kind of hope would it be if you could be free, even though your circumstances were trying to keep you captive, and yet you still felt free? This is the kind of hope that Jesus is trying to bring them, and he refuses to bring them their paltry, shallow, surface hope. The hope that they thought they wanted, he refuses to give it to them. In fact, he very specifically does everything he can to not mount a military or political campaign to bring about revolution. He won't do it. He will not serve their lesser hope. He can't. If you know that a greater hope will give you greater freedom, uh, uh, a, uh, an abundant life, why would you give someone a lesser hope instead? You know, it's when Jesus uh, speaks in metaphors and he says, well, what, uh, a good parent will um, never give a rock to their child who's asking for bread. I mean, the child may think that they want, um, uh, when the child asks for bread, the parent just doesn't give them something less than what they really, really want at their core. Parent gives them even more than the child knew they knew to ask for in the first place. That's even a good parent knows this. So justice is also tied to our hope, right? We, uh, in fact, all of our hope is tied up in the justice of what Jesus has done. He did not sneak over the fence and try to steal away our salvation. He did not do that. Instead, he went through the gate and he paid the price for our redemption. And because it was legal, cash on the barrel head, so to speak, his life for ours, um, that justice fulfilled has become now our freedom. Um, that justice is our life. It's, it, it's a grace. It's, it, is a, it is the a wellspring of grace that Jesus made this transfer, his life for ours. But it is a just transfer. And because of that, we find freedom. Hope has a weight. And that weight is infused by eternity. That's how deep it is. So how do we practice dependent hope in our life? Well, I want to close off by uh, inviting you to experience dependent hope with someone in your life. So I just want you to, now if you're driving, um, uh, this is probably not a good time to do this, but maybe you could still do this. Give it a shot. I'm just going to give you a very simple practice that I'd love for you to to do in the next, uh, do it now or do it in the next day. It's very simple. You just quiet yourself. So if you're going to try it right now, just be quiet, settle your soul. And I just want you to ask Jesus a very simple question. Think about someone in your life, just whoever pops into your head, a friend, your spouse, a child, the first person to pop into your head, think of someone in your life. You got it? Got that person? Okay, so just be quiet. Ask, ask Jesus this simple question. Jesus, please give me an image that represents your hope for this person. Jesus, just give me an image that represents your hope for this person. And then just wait. Wait for an image to pop into your head. Now, this is what I call playing with Jesus. 
This is uh, becoming children again, where we're not the adults who think and rethink and rethink again everything we do. This is just a child playing on the playground with Jesus. Nothing's on the line. We just have our hands open and a big smile on our face, and we're throwing this out to Jesus. And I'm being very specific here because the more specific you are, the more playful it is. So just ask Jesus, give me an image that represents your hope for my friend. And then you wait until an image pops up in your head, whatever it is. And don't, don't judge it. Don't demand that you understand it. Just write, draw, draw it on something. Draw it as best you can on a piece of paper. Now, I did this for all of you before I started recording this episode. I did exactly what I'm encouraging you to do for all of you before I started recording this podcast. I asked Jesus to pop into my head a picture, an image of something that represents his hope for somebody listening right now to this podcast, whatever it was. And this image popped into my head, and I'll tell you what it is in, in, just, a, in just a minute or two. This image popped into my head, and then I drew it on a sticky note in front of me. It was quite easy. I made a little uh, rudimentary drawing of it, and then I asked Jesus, and I, I want you to do this uh, on behalf of the, the person you're thinking about right now. Now that you have the image, then you simply ask Jesus, what does this image mean? What does this image mean, Jesus? And then you just wait. Wait, like I've said before on the podcast, like you're a catcher's mitt. You're just, you have your hand open, waiting for the pitch to come, and, and the ball comes across the plate and you grab it. That's it. You're not working. You're not striving. You're not chewing. You're not thinking. You're just waiting for the pitch to come across the plate. So you ask Jesus, Jesus, what does this image mean? And let him throw something across the plate to you. Don't manufacture a meaning. Just accept what comes, invite what comes, and then write it down. When you feel like you have something, you have that image, and you've written down what, what you think Jesus is telling you what it means, then I invite you to share that image and the description you received with that friend or spouse or child, whoever you're thinking about. Share that image and the description and just tell them very simply, hey, I prayed and I asked Jesus to give me an image of his hope for you and then to explain it once he did. And, and here's what I got. Here's the image and here's the meaning that, I, that came with it. Does this mean anything to you? That's, that's all you do. You ask your friend, does this mean anything to you? Because your friend gets to decide if it does have meaning or not. And if it doesn't have meaning, it's okay. You're just playing. This is not a competition. <laughs> it's not, you're not getting graded for this. We're just playing like little children. So there's nothing on the line. So you ask your friend, does this image and meaning have any meaning to you? If it doesn't, okay. That's just the pizza talking, I guess. But if it does have meaning to them, ask them why. Why does it have meaning to you? And then after you've had that conversation, ask if you can pray for your friend and use the image and meaning that you've received as sort of the spark for your prayer. Just use what has come to you as the spark for your prayer. Now look, before like I said, before I started recording this podcast, I asked Jesus for an image that applied to his hope for someone listening right now. So I don't know who you are, but uh, uh, for someone, this is the hope that he's speaking over you. So I saw this image of an escalator, 
an empty escalator just going up. Uh, I don't even know where the escalator was. I just saw a tight view of this escalator going up, uh, slowly delivering whatever would stand on those stairs from point A to point B, an escalator going up. And I, I, so I asked Jesus, what does this image mean, Jesus? And what Jesus spoke to me is, and this is his word to you, his image and his word to you, someone who's listening right now, that the escalator means hold on, just step on to me and I will carry you up. Another way of saying that is stop working, just step on to me, I will carry you up. So for somebody um, who just heard that, if your spirit sort of quickened, rose to that, uh, you felt magnetically drawn to that, something spoke to you in what I just said, then probably that's for you. And it could be for more than one person. <laughs> Jesus is generous. He's kind. Um, he may have said that to many, many people who are listening right now. Um, he's an artist. He can do whatever he wants. But if that resonated with you, that his, his hope for you is that you would step on to him so that he can carry you on up, then embrace it for yourself. Thank him for it. Respond with gratitude. Of the 10 lepers, only one of them came back to thank Jesus. Be the one <laughs> that comes back to thank Jesus for speaking that word over you. And that hope, that hope is in him. It's invested in our living hope that in the end, his grace will carry all of us up the escalator, <laughs> that no work that we do will get us from point A to point B, that he's already done the work. All he's asking is that we join him. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. Uh, you can uh, find the podcast on PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Um, this is season five, episode 25. The best way to make sure that you don't miss any of these episodes, of course, is to subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. Just subscribe. And th this podcast now is produced... Um, by me. And if you want more information about the things I'm up to, go to ricklawrence.com or you can go to paying ridiculous attention to jesus.com and look for season five, episode 25. And you'll find links of everything we've talked about today right there on that page. You can also join the pigs, which is a, a private Facebook community of people that, that uh, listen to this podcast and want to take their, their next Uji Uji step toward intimacy with Jesus together. We're a messy, broken crowd of people, but we, we all hunger and thirst to be all in for Jesus. So you'll find a link there on the podcast page as well to be asked to join into this private Facebook group called The Pigs. So head on over there if you'd love to check that out, and we'll talk again next time. <laughs>